for some reason, my my mouse constantly double clicks. Like I can click once and it will register a double click. It's weird. The CIA. <laughs> <laughs> that's my go-to because it's just a shocking number of things where that's true. So you know, fuck it. It's the yeah, CIA. Like, well, one of the things that I have to wonder is like the people involved in doing all the like various like cyber skullduggery for all of our various you know de- department of evil. Uh, that exist, you know, in the U.S. Like they have, I'm sure they have all sorts of like dumbass, like because they're 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 nerds, but they work for the CIA or the NSA or whatever. So I'm sure that they're out there. There's some stupid like malware that's like Gremlins.exe or some bullshit, and all it's designed to do is make your computer do annoying shit that you can't diagnose and just drive you insane. Oh yeah, absolutely. I bet being annoying isn't it not just like. A, a thing the CIA does. I bet it's a fairly effective thing that the CIA does. Like if you just go into a computer lab where a bunch of people have to get fairly important work done and you walk around and you stick a magnet on the side of two of the computer towers, you're going to cause way more than two computers worth of damage. Yeah. So, yeah imagine it just on a grand scale, millions of mice double clicking when they should be single clicking. <laughs> Accidentally <laughs> confirming saves, losing things they could be control zing to. It's a nightmare situation. <laughs> the CIA tried to stop me this morning. You know what I woke up to this morning? I hadn't even had my coffee yet. I hit a fucking deer. Hit oh, a no. fucking deer. Yeah. I managed to slow down to about 15 miles an hour by the time I actually hit the deer. And it only like, it glanced me because it was trying to run away, but it it's really dumb. Deer are quite stupid animals. Yes. And there's a lot and of them around here. It, it, it looked like I, it's really dark when I drive to work in the morning, so I couldn't tell, but it looked like it just ran into the forest and I think it's fine. Um, and the only damage it did to my car was it knocked the rear view mirror out of my rear view mirror panel and <laughs> bent it inward. So I just parked at a stop sign and I walked around and I clicked everything back in place and you wouldn't even know I hit a deer. Oh, you would nice. never tell. <laughs> Dang. That's good. Well, I'm glad Take that, that you CIA. and the deer are safe. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> so they tried to stop your boy, but he succeeded. They said it couldn't be done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just like, like uh, instead of the birds aren't real, it's deer or CIA agents. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, honestly, of all the conspiracies, I think that's one that merits some investigation. We'll say I that. I mean, well, wasn't there some dumb story recently about Ukraine like capturing Russian attack dolphins or some bullshit <laughs> why is it always dolphins they always want us to think that they've weaponized dolphins because i think I it's because they like know people story. know dolphins are smart i think mm-hmm. so i think that's why they're that's the go-to it's so interesting because you'd think like they'd actually want to weaponize like corvids like imagine if you had an, an a battalion of crows and ravens that were able to fight on your behalf uh yeah. anyway i also well, thought i also <laughs> thought of like an elephant you know, like they're smart as hell. Yeah. But the problem with elephants is that they actually, uh, I believe they don't really breed them. They're like too big to effectively breed as like a stock animal. So I think oh. all the elephants that get used for like warfare or for industry have just been captured more or less. Um, at least that's my understanding. Well, that's yeah. another crime by the CIA right there. Truly.
Courtesy Zoology Podcast. But that <laughs> That's is, right. That is not about Bigfoot at all. Uh, <laughs> my name is The John. only oh, conspiracy yeah. zoology podcast that promises to never discuss Bigfoot. That's right. We're work stoppage. <laughs> my name is John. <laughs> uh, I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported labor podcast, so thank you if you support us on Patreon. It really does go an enormous way towards keeping the show going. Hop in the Discord if you're not in there already. If you're a patron and you would like some stickers, just message us on Patreon and we'll get you some stickers. And if you want to help us a little bit more, you can leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think it will help. In the YouTube comments, maybe, of a video about why uh, people don't breed elephants. (laughs) That's right. Um, and also, you know, before we get into things, I just want to throw out there, definitely want to encourage folks, uh, check out our crossover episode that we did last week with the working people podcast. Uh, you know, that was a long time coming, really excited to sit down with, uh, Max Alvarez and talk about those wonderful upbeat things we talk about on the show every week, like child labor and prison slavery and all the horrific things U.S. capitalism does, but, uh, it was a really great time. It was a great conversation, uh, and I think that you know folks would really like it. So uh, it's on our patron feed. It's on the Working People bonus feed. Uh, definitely check it out, uh, especially and and of course also listen to Working People. Fantastic podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, I imagine most of our listenership probably already does listen to Working People, but if you don't, check them out. They're great, and consider oh, subscribing yeah. to their Patreon as well. That's right. Well, we're going to start this episode as we have on the mo- on the couple of most recent episodes where we just go over a couple of quick hits where we do not have a ton of details, but we want to you know, give some shout outs to different struggles going on. We're going to start with the Scoopers United at Ben and Jerry's, who actually got their voluntary recognition from the company. Which you know, I is took them Woo. long enough to do that, I guess. Mm-hmm. But the workers at the Burlington, Vermont Scoop Shop. Uh, overwhelmingly signed cards to join Workers United, and uh, they did the card check, and the company is now agreeing to recognize the union. Let's see what will happen in bargaining. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, uh, it, it's always interesting with these uh, companies that really try to, to poise themselves as being like really smart and progressive and like who does that harder than Ben and Jerry's? So I guess this is like the ultimate test of whether or not you can actually uh, be at all good to your workers by well, embracing I, that ethos. And I mentioned this in the Discord when talking about this is when they actually uh, get their contract, they better extend all of those positive benefits to all the other stores and- and uh, let that union speak for all the workers, too. Yeah. Why don't they just hand over the store directly to the workers? I mean, I have some ideas about how Ben and Jerry's could handle this. That's uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. Congratulations to the folks at Scoopers United. Looking forward to seeing, hopefully, a fair contract negotiation process. Although, of course, we are not holding our breath for that. Mm-hmm. Um for our next, you know, just real quick hit, we just wanted to very quickly follow up and and shout out the Amazon tech workers because we talked last week about them planning a walkout, and there was indeed a walkout on Wednesday last week. <laughs> Sorry, on Wednesday, May 31st, there were about 500 to 1,000. I couldn't really get a, a, a perfect number uh, of tech workers in Seattle who walked out at 
uh, corporate HQ, joined by about a thousand other employees at Amazon offices around the world. And so, you know, it's just one day, but we really hope that this is the start of a long movement by tech workers at Amazon to fight not only for their own conditions, but also to con- connect their struggle with the struggle of the workers in the warehouses and the delivery drivers. Because, you know, bringing all those folks together and struggling against Amazon at once would be such a great force multiplier. And ultimately, all these workers have the same interests at heart. So that's right. That's really what we hope to see out of that. But then uh, one final quick hit on here. Uh, Just wanted to express, uh, as always, our solidarity with the ILWU as rank and file members have been organizing wildcat walkouts at ports across the West Coast. Uh, in response to the refusal of West Coast ports to negotiate in good faith on various issues during the negotiations that are going on right now. the In fact, the, the port of Oakland was completely shut down on Friday, June 2nd, due to a lack of labor, and operations at the port of L.A. were also disrupted by walkouts. And- Can you imagine being the boss that decides to like be shitty to the ILWU? Like, what a fucking mistake. Well, and that's one of the things, though, that I think is great because it's like because they're in the middle of ongoing negotiations, the strike can't officially be, you know, an official union sanctioned strike. So it's a wildcat. But this is one of those wildcats where, like, you know, the officers are like, oh, no, I cannot believe these workers took action of their own accord. How could that happen? (laughs) and so, uh, you know, this is not technically a formal strike. It's a reflection of displeasure at the failure of port operators to come to fair terms with the union. But, you know, I think <laughs> that the union officers made their positions clear when ILWU president Willie Adams said in a press release, quote, We aren't going to settle for an economic package that doesn't recognize the heroic efforts and personal sacrifices of the ILWU workforce that lifted the shipping industry to record profits, end quote. That's right. Absolutely. I mean, the workers are the ones who made that happen in the first place, and they know it. I love that, and solidarity with the ILWU. But to move into our stories for the week, we're going to do a follow-up on the University of Michigan geo-workers who have been on strike for quite a long time now. Uh, Now, the uh, university administration is sending cops to organizers' doors at their homes. Yeah. Uh, this sucks (laughs) just to kind of jump into this, like this whole strike has just been absolutely wild. You know, we've talked so many times about the eagerness with which some bosses leap to immediate repression anytime that their workers, you know, fight back. But in academia, it's basically been like, you know, the Tulsa administration, I feel like earlier this year, and then Michigan have been at like the most just highest level of repression willing to pull out all the stops to attack their own workers. Uh, and, and I mean, we even saw them, you know, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how they've been even torpedoing their own academic credibility by just giving out fake grades because the, the only workers who can actually give a real grade to so many of these students have been out on strike. Crown and, Mi- U of M baby, crown jewel of the Michigan education system. <laughs> it yeah. sucks so bad. So uh, now they've taken it 
another step further, as Lena said, you know, dispatching campus police officers to harass union leaders at homes uh, in, in an attempt to intimidate them. Uh, and specifically, this seems to be in response. And I will say this kind of, I think, fits a pattern, and we'll get into that. But like this escalation seems to be in response to workers who recently took action to only briefly picket a downtown restaurant where University of Michigan President Ono had been dining. And in addition to the workers who received a home visit from campus police, another was threatened uh, with, uh, you know, emails by the same campus police officer. And in all cases, uh, it's this officer going to these workers and, and threatening to file charges against them for their picketing and telling them, oh, well, you know, you better hire, uh, better speak to campus legal services because, uh, yeah, it's going to be really bad. Yeah, it's just such a transparent intimidation technique. And uh, it also strikes me as very Midwestern to just send the cops around to their houses to to try and kind of like verbally bully them into believing things that aren't even necessarily true. And uh, the union, GEO, uh, didn't really waste any time in saying uh, that this is just a load of bullshit. They put out a statement which said, quote, this strike-breaking tactic is intended to instill fear. Our strongest defense is to support each other and to know our rights. The graduate students who have been targeted by DPSS, along with the other graduate students who were involved in the picket action, are in touch with and receiving support from each other, legal counsel, and GEO leadership. We take this opportunity to emphasize that you are never required to talk to police. The experiences of these two union siblings show again that UM and academic HR are afraid and are resorting to intimidation tactics to break our strike. And I love that quote, not just because it's true and because it illustrates important points, but also because it has kind of the vibe of those criminal defense lawyers who post on Twitter and they're like, never talk to the police. <laughs> Shut the fuck up Fridays. You know, yeah. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I love those guys. <laughs> that shit is so funny. But like the thing to me though, I, that stands out, like, obviously this is a ridiculous escalation of harassment to a campaign that already had way too much harassment and intimidation in it. But it, the fact that it came after picketing of the president personally while they were dining, um, this to me fits into such a broader pattern of really like different segments of like the bourgeoisie as well as, uh, you know, upper levels of the petty bourgeoisie who are who get absolutely furious at the concept there that there could ever be a consequence of any kind to their actions, even purely like symbolic consequences, even something that does. Cause again, like protesting like this, they briefly protested them when they were out getting a meal. Is that going to really monumentally change their life? No, but just the imposition, the fact mm -hmm. that somebody would dare in public to call them out just sends them into a rage. This like, and I'm thinking like, consider like the apoplectic response to people protesting outside of the Supreme Court justices' homes in the wake of the Dobbs ruling. You had all this pearl clutching from the media pundit class about, how, oh, this is, an, this is outside the bounds of civility. And this all reminds me of that same thing where you have these people who are just like, well, wait a minute, how you can't protest. I'm supposed to be insulated from the consequences of my actions. Do you not see <laughs> the, the part where I'm in the higher class than you? <laughs> but it's just like, no, motherfucker. <laughs> You're out here too. Like, 
if you want to hide behind like you know walls and guards go for it but if you're going to come out into public we're in public too and we're going to follow you around fuck you <laughs> yeah that's right so solidarity with the geo workers don't let the cops intimidate you or administration for that matter but speaking of the you know supreme court we actually are have to have a discussion about the recent ruling in the Glacier Northwest case, which we did briefly uh, talk about in our episode with working people. Uh, and this is a pretty obvious situation when it comes to what the Supreme Court is meant to do, and that is rule in favor of the bosses and the ruling class, because that's exactly what they did in an eight-to-one ruling they sided with Glacier Northwest in the case where there were Teamsters that had gone on strike and there was cement in the trucks and they, you know, left the trucks running, but then the cement still ended up hardening. And the Supreme Court says uh, the union has to pay for those those damages to the vehicles. Yeah, the... That's the overarching part of the case, but where it gets into like how this affects the right to strike is where you start getting into kind of the legal minutia and stuff, uh, which is one of the factors about this case that makes it so weird because the on the face of it, it's like you're going to the Supreme Court over, I believe, I, I saw a tweet that was like 50 cubic yards of concrete. Right. Like, that, that could, like that's a write-off. But again, it's because it's not about that. It's about the legal precedent this sets. So... Uh, where this becomes so problematic is that prior precedent under the law has been that because the NLRA is a federal law, it therefore supersedes state law when it comes to labor, uh, and that the NLRA sets up the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, uh, in order to adjudicate disputes such as this one that the this company, Glacier Northwest, took to the Supreme Court. The idea is they are a body that is specifically set up to handle labor disputes. They handle thousands and thousands of labor cases every year. So, of course, they are the adjudicating body that they should go through for these sorts of disputes, not, critically, the state court system. And so in the past, there's always been this understood preemption that if they try to sue this, no, no, you have to go to the NLRB first. If the NLRB says your case has merit, then it can proceed. Wow, I love jurisprudence. It's so great. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but so this the the ruling now is saying, well, but see, there's an exception here, which is that see the workers knew what they were doing, and yes, they left the the trucks running, but they could have you know they could have timed this differently, they could have done this strike differently to still make a big impact without ruining uh, this property. That, <laughs> the boss owned but uh, you know critically and what strikes me as totally inane about that whole argument is that that is not a qualitative distinction between what a strike generally is and this particular strike it is a quantitative distinction in the degree of economic damage done to the company and basically their argument is this one doesn't count because the workers were a little extra mean about it which again isn't even true, but I think this was just an opportunity because I guess Glacier Northwest was willing to take this all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah, exactly. And like this decision, this, this, you know, the majority eight, one decision was authored by justice, Amy Coney Barrett and the court in this, essentially her reasoning 
functionally eviscerates that precedent of, no, if you have disputes like this, it doesn't go through the state court, it goes through the NLRB. And this is a precedent coming from a case called, referred to as Garmin. And so technically, this case does not overturn Garmin. The precedent remains in place. However, what this, because like, Technically, again, when you just zoom in and only look at this case, what this ruling does is it says, well, the Teamsters really, you know, you, sh- you could have gone about this a different way and you really should have. And so, you know, because there's some intent here, we think that this case actually does need to be ruled on by the state court. Now, the state court could just say, actually, you have to go to the NLRB, and that would, you know, of course, solve this specific issue. The problem is where this goes outside this specific case. Because, like, yeah, again, this is over 50 cubic yards of concrete or whatever. But because, according to Amy Coney Barrett, the workers' actions, quote, put Glacier's property in foreseeable and imminent danger, end quote, that because of that, that created a situation where the union had wronged the property owner, Glacier Northwest, and therefore they should be able to be sued in state court. And that is the problem because what that does is that now opens the floodgates for every company in the whole goddamn country. Every time a union goes on strike, now there's going to be two lawsuits, one that's going to go to the NLRB and almost certainly get struck down and one that's going to go to a state court. And that's just a big roulette wheel because who knows? You've seen some of the wild Heritage Foundation pod people judges in this country. There are plenty of guys out there itching to use one of these frivolous duplicate lawsuits to to like expand this ruling more and more and more until it gets to the point that the uh, it was made very clear in consenting remarks by Justices uh, Gorsuch, Alito, and um, Thomas that most of the court, or at least you know the farthest right extremes of it, are more than happy to completely overturn this precedence, gut the NLRA, and essentially return us to the Lochner era, which is really where they want us to go with this. So while right now, as of this recording, no, the right to strike has not been eviscerated completely, this case opens the door for that. Yeah, it's like they poked a big ass fucking hole in the right to strike, and they, we're we're all standing around waiting to see if it's gonna, you know, if the whole tire is gonna blow, or if we're just gonna have to ride on a flat for a little while. Yeah, well, yeah. and we have a quote here from Jane McAlevey, who was um, it, who wrote in the Nation to you know provide some important analysis on the ruling, uh, and at least how and how it pertains to the immediate future, where she said, "quote What the court did today." in essence, was simply say workers cannot call surprise strikes that cause property damage, end quote. And, you know, however, she, as she points out, Justice Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch made it very clear in the case that they believe the Garmin president should be completely overturned and the authority of the NLRB completely tossed out the window with the rest of, you know, the business regulations. And they basically set the stage to do that. Yeah, and... So there's a lot of takeaways from this. One is certainly not, well, now workers can't strike. That is not the right conclusion. Uh, uh, and we'll get to what union, how unions can adjust to this because that was one of the things that I thought was very good about McAlevey's piece is she actually goes in and lays out, here are some steps unions can take to adjust to this, which I think is really, really useful. But one of the things that I think, you know, just politically that I think is vital to take away from this is a re- this needs to be 
the the death of the you can reform the supreme court by expanding it canard like this idea that oh well pa- oh well they're gonna you know cheat and they're gonna refuse to seat uh merrick garland well we're gonna do our own wonky bullshit and we're gonna expand the court to 13 justices and then we'll have a liberal majority the vote on this was eight to one only one of the democrat appointed justices voted against this and if you expanded the court to be 13 people, that vote would just be 11 to 2. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this, is right. a, this is a structural problem because the Supreme Court's entire purpose is to be that last bulwark within, you know, the, I mean, before you get to the army, <laughs> um, within the governmental structure to stop uh, democratic change from ever occurring. Its purpose is to legislate without accountability. And so... It doesn't matter which party appoints the justices. Like, ultimately, like, yes, there will be some differences and you know, and certainly some that are significant. But as far as ruling in favor of property owners or against property owners, it's going to be the same regardless of who appoints them because you don't get into the Supreme Court without being a defender of capital. <laughs> but one of the things that this also tells us i think one of the other biggest takeaways and one of the ones that's really more important i think when we think about moving forward what this decision really does for me is it underlines even more how important it is that we fight to make our unions democratic in every sense and that they they need to be militant in every sense because this ruling one of the things it's going to do is it's going to give all sorts of ammunition to the conservative class collaborationist voices that exist in any organization and and, and you or but specifically in unions who will say well now the next time uh, people are like we got to strike over whatever bullshit the boss is doing uh, because you know the bosses aren't going to stop doing bullshit uh and now you're going to get all those voices being like well we better be careful what if we get sued into oblivion remember that supreme court ruling and there's they're going to try and use this to convince you no let's go back to the negotiating table we can't strike it's too risky yeah, I do think that uh, one of the things that I do appreciate about what has come out from the unions in regards to this ruling, though, is that contrary to the Janus uh, ruling where the unions were like, uh, this is going to eviscerate our membership. We have to cut back on literally everything. We've seen a lot more of the unions like actually make statements saying this is not going to make a huge difference for us. Um uh, we had uh, Sean O'Brien, who you know basically immediately lambasted the court, correctly calling for workers to you know unite around these attacks, saying, "quote The Teamsters will strike any employer when necessary, no matter what size or the depth of their pockets. Unions will never be broken by this court or any other." Today's shameful ruling is simply one of the one more reminder that the American people cannot rely on their government or their courts to protect them. They cannot rely on their employers. We must rely on each other. We must engage in organized collective action. We can only rely on the protections inherent in the power of our unions. Yeah. Which I was very happy to see, because that's like exactly the statement that you want to see coming out of an event like this. And that's why I'm glad that it's, you know, Sean O'Brien in charge of the, or like as the president of the Teamsters, instead of like fucking Jimmy Hoffa Jr. (laughs) Like, can you imagine how shitty the response would have been to some wonky lawyer bullshit 
but instead, you know, we get the the militant response of no fuck you. <laughs> We're not going to stop striking. We're going to strike wherever we have to strike and we'll figure out, you know, what we have to do because like, and I really appreciate that. It's like, it's a recognition that it's not like, it's not just the most bland and milk toast appeal to these damn Republicans. They're <laughs> ruining everything, which we see every fucking time the right does something in this country. And it's like, yeah, I'm sorry, but the other whole big group of people that are completely complicit in doing all those things are just, you know, as big of a problem. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I also love the quote from April Sims, who's president of the Washington State Labor Council, which was, of course, directly involved in this case, saying, quote, the Glacier Northwest decision changes nothing. The momentum of our labor movement cannot be stopped. As organized workers, we control when and whether we labor. Opinions of the court will not stop workers striking for better pay and working conditions, exercising our right to make our own choices on pregnancy, or fighting for better jobs and stronger communities for all working people. Working power is on the rise, end quote. Hell yeah. We did also hear from Liz Schuler, president of the AFL-CIO, who said, quote, this decision will in no way deter workers from going on strike. Working people are standing up for our rights and fairness in the workplace at a rate not seen in generations. Striking for justice on the job is a critical part of the labor movement's resurgence. The AFL-CIO and our more than 12.5 million members will continue to fight for workers, and we know that we will succeed. So... And I I love to hear that from the AFL-CIO because I think that that, you know, really highlights what I was saying in the contrast to the Janus ruling that even a more conservative union like the AFL is willing to say, yeah, this doesn't change anything. We will strike when we intend to strike. Yeah, well, yeah. It, it, it's it's also going to be uh, kind of interesting when um, bosses feel more uh, inclined to mobilize police against workers, and then the AFL has to straddle that fence of trying to represent the police unions and trying to represent actual unions. Yeah, that's one of the things I was going to say. It's like because this is a good statement, and honestly, generally, I think Liz Schuler has been doing a pretty decent job mm-hmm. as, as so far as head of the AFL. Like I, I think they've been you know a little better than they they had been in the past. But again, there's a as you mentioned, there's a big glaring problem that's still standing out there. That it's like, why are the police unions still in the AFL? Like why isn't why hasn't that been fixed? Like uh, why would you let a union of Pinkertons into the AFL CIO? No, you would not. So. Uh, why did you do that? Because they have a badge. Like, (laughs) so anyways, uh, great statement from the AFL CIO. Now please follow it up with some action. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, to go back to, you know, just how unions generally can respond to this. I do think that one of the, the things that Jane McAlevey recommended in her article in the nation is a good one just for like some direct on the ground ways that we can fight this. Uh, she proposed what I think is a really great idea, which is just preempt these lawsuits in your contract. Basically as part of contract negotiations, the major unions just should just start blanket demanding that the companies waive the right to take these sorts of lawsuits and just put it in writing because, and, and, and she explains, quote, employers regularly insist that workers waive their rights to sue on a plethora of issues. It's time to use employers' predisposition against court claims against them. Winning anything like that, however, will take the power built through workers taking ownership of their demands and strategy in the negotiations process, choosing to exercise their own right to strike with their coworkers, end quote. I think wow. that the first 
big example that we will have of this, this is a little bit of a, of a prediction here, is uh, the UPS contract. I think that we, yeah. we will probably see something related to this ruling in the strike that will almost... Inev- almost certainly happen now because even if the UPS was intimidated previously, like, oh, we're going to get rid of the tears and all that, to put this sort of language into a contract is going to require a fight. And I don't yeah, think that and- Sean O'Brien and the UPS Teamsters are going to back down. And it's also just a great example of how unbelievably powerful it is to get things that you want in writing. I mean, Mm -hmm. the whole fucking capitalist world runs on contracts and that's not good, but you should definitely, you know, be adept at using contracts to, to win what you need. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, we won the legal right to strike through illegal strikes. We Mm -hmm. can do it again. So talk about uh, do it again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And we'll make it permanent this time, motherfuckers. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) But anyways, Fuck the Supreme Court, and we'll get a little more into that in the meme review. But uh, <laughs> uh, to move on to our next story, uh, unfortunately, in addition to basically the Supreme Court trying to do union busting on a nationwide scale, uh, we also saw an expansion of union busting at a specific scale down at the size of one company, specifically, in this case, REI. So we've been, you know, really excitedly following the growth of the union movement at REI over the last year. There have been so many inspirational stories of union drives popping up at retail locations around the country that were previously thought impossible to organize. And so, you know, the we've seen the success of the worker-led model employed by workers at Starbucks, you know, through the Starbucks Workers United campaign, be borrowed at least a little bit by the UFCW and their sister union, the RWDSU, in the REI drive, really empowering the workers at each store. Unfortunately, now REI corporate has decided to borrow tactics from that same campaign, but from their counterpart, Starbucks corporate. And they've now begun escalating their anti-union assault on the workers by hiring notorious union-busting law firm and enemies of the show, Morgan Lewis, and just basically unleashing the same sort of delay, 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 break labor law over and over and over again, commit a million ULPs, the same bullshit that we've seen from Starbucks over the last you know year and a half. Yeah, I mean, they began by canceling many of the the bargaining sessions previously planned to discuss the details of a potential first contract. And I mean, like, this is obviously their attempt to jump on that bad faith bandwagon that so many big corporations have been using in the in modern times, but also all throughout history. I mean, in addition, they've gone out of their way to cut workers wages at union stores. Because last year, in response to the union movement, REI launched a program called The Way Forward. You may have remembered if you've been a longtime listener, which included pay raises for or pay raises and benefit improvements for non-union stores, which is illegal bribery. But you know they seem to think that they can get away with it, as you know, like we mentioned, Starbucks has tried that as well. In response to this blatant union busting, the union workers at the Soho store in New York City didn't wait for help from the government, which obviously wasn't coming. Instead, they took direct action, holding a walkout to demand the same raises as everyone else. 
Uh, in exchange for an agreement not to strike until June 1st of this year, which has passed, uh, the company agreed to their demands. But now they have announced that they will be clawing it all back, slashing workers' pay and benefits explicitly for having unionized. Wow. The retaliation never really fucking stops with these companies, does it? Mm -hmm. So uh, we've heard a response to this move from Stuart Applebaum, who is the president of the RWDSU, uh, who issued in a statement, quote, the workers of REI Soho are ready to negotiate a strong contract that will allow them to uphold the co-op's professed, but not often practiced, progressive values, while providing the top-notch service REI customers have come to expect. The company just has to treat them with dignity and respect, and that means leaving their pay and benefits alone amid these final days of negotiations. It also means bargaining fairly, not rehashing the arguments already made at the table just because they've hired new representation. REI, now is not the time to set back your unionized workers. Now is the time to finish bargaining and get to a contract with fair wages. Stop delaying, stop hurting your workers, and stop the union busting. Which it's just like... I didn't even realize that they had just decided like, oh, we have new representation. So now it's time to start literally from the beginning of negotiations again and go back over everything. I mean, what a dishonest and frankly, you know, diabolical move. I hate jurisprudence. <laughs> yeah. And, and it, it's also it's just it's this is just one of those things that's endlessly frustrating. And I know I complain about it a lot and end up sounding like a broken record, but it's just like. Every aspect of this union busting campaign by REI that Morgan Lewis has directed them to do is illegal. Like, mm -hmm. like that is one of the things that is just, you know, I think is something that is worth ruminating on is the fact that we have, you know, a whole profession within, you know, the legal realm that is specifically designed not, again, unlike a little bit with like some tax lawyering, not to tell people how to use loopholes to get around the law, which of course they do, but also to just be like, yeah, you should just break this law because there's no consequences yeah. to it. That one, uh, you never get caught, so break that one. That one, you do get caught every time, but it's actually still cheaper to break it, so just break it. And like, they just go right down the list. And imagine, if you will, a scenario in which you hire, let's say, a life coach to follow you around, and the life coach was like, you could just steal that bag of oranges from the store. Nobody would be able to chase you down in the street. And then <laughs> they gave yeah. you like bad advice after bad advice. You broke a bunch of laws because of what they told you don't you think they should be a little bit culpable too <laughs> <laughs> yeah like their job is literally to be the cartoon devil on somebody's shoulder <laughs> like yeah that's you, your profession but you have to pay your cartoon devil exorbitant amounts of money <laughs> yes to, mostly to legitimize to, what they tell you which is you, an amazing you, dynamic that blows my mind every time i think about well, it and this is why paying all an advisor three hundred dollars $300 an hour to lie to you. Yeah, yeah, I, absolutely. And this is why all those union busting firms have two names because they want to appear like they've got the angel and the devil, but it's just two devils. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, and ultimately, I I think what this emphasizes and, and the workers are playing this out right now is it, it just shows how vital it is that we keep the strike rep weapon ready to go. 
Like, Mm -hmm. you know, and the workers showed this. They used it effectively last year to force the company to back down and and give them the same raises they gave everybody else. Now that they're trying to illegally remove those, uh, you know, they've already started doing more demonstrations over the weekend. I saw several, you know, uh, uh, posts on social media, specifically on Twitter, about, you know, them rolling out with scabby out in front of the (laughs) the store to protest these moves. So really, really glad to see the folks at REI, you know, fighting back against this bullshit from corporate and understanding that it's like, they're not, that's another thing that I love about, you know, the way the workers have responded to this. They're not just filing ULPs, though, of course they are as they should. They're not just, you know, demanding that the NLRB hold these folks accountable, which we know they won't. They are taking action into their own hands to fight back against this. And as always, you know, solidarity with these workers, REI, come on, get rid of Morgan Lewis. (laughs) Like, stop hiring just, like, them and Littler and the Labor Relations Institute, just these, you know, hives of scum and villainy, and come back to the bargaining table. Hell yeah. Well, as long as we're talking about taking a stand, let's talk about some badass Floridians who are taking a stand against uh, Shit DePantis, governor of Florida. <laughs> so, <laughs> Hell yeah. It's always funny. So the, <laughs> the working class have decided that they're going to fight back against this fascist regime that DeSantis has been running in, throughout Florida. And this uh, fight took a major step forward on Thursday, the 1st of June, when thousands of uh, workers and some business owners even marched and protested in Six cities across the state to demand an end to the assault on immigrant workers. These workers flooded the streets and many businesses closed their doors in support to demand that DeSantis repeal the recently passed racist anti-migrant bill, which essentially criminalizes even knowing an undocumented worker. So this bill was passed three weeks ago and would take effect uh, if it is not stopped on the 1st of July. It contains numerous openly racist elements. It bans undocumented workers from all state services, invalidates driver's licenses issued in other states, requires doctors to ask for immigration status and to refuse to provide funding for treatment for migrants. In addition, to these outright fascist measures, the bill specifically aims to exclude migrants from the workforce by requiring all employers with over 25 workers to use the federal e-verify system. It also threatens companies that refuse to implement the system with fines of $1,000 a day and makes it a felony for undocumented workers to apply for work with a fake ID. I've never understood exactly how the whole felony system works. When I was a kid, my dad was like, felony is a federal law. You break it you broke a federal law and now it's just like states make this a felony states make that a felony and it's like playing pretty fast and loose with the legalese here (laughs) yeah yeah i think it's a thousand dollars a day is almost more than an osha fine like that is more than yeah (laughs) it's way (laughs) more but um yeah this bill is really fucked up and um the biggest thing that I think I've seen most reporting on, uh, a, a lot of it is, I think, mostly from people who are worried about how it would affect people who aren't undocumented because most of our media do- is you know, racist and doesn't give a shit about migrants. Uh, and I will cite as my example all reporting on immigration in the United States. <laughs> but Checks out to me. The big thing that has really stuck out to a lot of folks is the new definition this bill creates for what human smuggling is. 
The bill contains a provision that allows the state to charge anyone transporting undocumented migrants into the state, even literally just driving your friend to the store with human trafficking, and that that person could be charged with a felony and face five years in prison. And again, the, it's absurd to delineate driving someone around who happens to be undocumented as human. That's automatically human trafficking. This has nothing to do with fighting human trafficking or smuggling or modern slavery or any of that. It is just trying to criminalize the very existence of undocumented migrants as a first step towards criminalizing the existence of all Latin American people or anybody who they don't class as white in this country, the same way they're attempting to criminalize the existence of trans people. Uh, like again, as we see, you know, these struggles are all linked together, but I will say, I do think one of the things that this is exposing is that there is not unity within the ruling class around how specifically to deploy fascism and how to actually roll out all of these measures. Because, uh, you know, while, yeah, there are plenty of super racist, you know, uh, pool supply store owners out there who are cheering on this sort of thing, but there's also a huge segment of even the bourgeoisie and the petty bourgeoisie who do not want this sort of a bill because they like being able to exploit undocumented workers. They like being able to pay undocumented workers less than anybody else or pay them under the table or force them to work longer hours than are legal with the threat of deportation because it's a great source of cheap labor for them that this bill makes harder for them to acquire. And so that's a big part of the reason why, in addition to, of course, you know, the thousands of workers who, who marched in protest of this bill uh, on last Thursday, that you even had a lot of business owners as well, including some people who otherwise have pretty reactionary politics, because this bill materially hurts them, because the people they want to pay very low wages to work for them are not going to be able to exist in the state. And now, of course, you know, we could discuss, like, the broader uh, ins and outs of an actual good, just immigration law. But in the, specifically when it comes to this story, like the problem is for, for DeSantis here, or at least for the contradiction that it creates is that the profits of many of the rich white boosters of DeSantis's very campaign rake, they rake these in, in construction, hospitality, agriculture, and so many other industries that they are completely reliant on being able to super exploit these migrant workers, where even where you have like white nationalist business owners, they're still capitalists and they still don't want to pay their white workers any more than they're paying undocumented workers. And so that's why you started to, you know, see wedges get driven in here within the ruling class, which is something I, is, I think always important for us to be looking for because anytime that we can pit, they're always, let me rephrase, they're always trying to pit us against each other. And there are moments where we can pit segments of the ruling class against each other. And I think this is one of them uh, because the U.S. economic machine is so reliant on cheap labor. Uh, check out our recent crossover episode with uh, working people for more on that. Um, that if you take away that labor supply, even in, you know, the service of white nationalism and all this other fascist ideology, like that 
materially hurts a segment of the bourgeoisie who's maybe going to decide, I don't actually like that. And if we can pit those folks against each other, that only makes organizing our side easier. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's it's important to remember that people who are evil and powerful are not necessarily smart or good at tactics or even understand <laughs> yes. the systems that they're interacting with in a meaningful way whatsoever. And I think, you know, Governor DePantis is an excellent example of that. Yeah. An organizer at the Hope Community Center in Orlando explained Felipe Souza uh, said, quote, this bill would make them a felon if they drive their mom or auntie or grandmother or sibling for a simple road trip. And then upon returning, they could face up to 15 years in jail. This law is, quite honestly, unconstitutional and inhumane. We have no other choice but to hold accountable those who have harmed our community. We truly believe that this is the moment when all of us have to stand up and fight back, end quote. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, this is one of those cases where we have to be on the right side of this argument. <laughs> like, Because, you know, how many times have we seen the right try and use this sort of a thing to mobilize a portion of the working class in their favor, to say, oh, it's all these undocumented folks taking your jobs or driving your wages down, all this fucking bullshit. And it's like, you guys are the ones exploiting <laughs> these undocumented workers in order to drive our wages down. So the, the thing to do is not to, you know, become a xenophobe and insist on the deportation of all undocumented workers. It's in fact to do the exact opposite. It is to embrace those undocumented workers as exactly, you know, the same as all our other union brothers and sisters in this country and to fight for better conditions for them, to fight for a path to amnesty, to fight for, you know, an end to this existing racist and frankly genocidal immigration system that this country has so that all workers can work on an, on an equal playing field here, you know, with the goal of organizing those workers, bringing these undocumented workers into our unions so that they can win the same benefits and fight alongside all the rest of the folks in the U S labor movement so that we can eventually build a society where there's no such thing as an undocumented or a documented worker because we stop pretending that border are high are like actual things that exist and not just you know fake lines drawn on a map yeah absolutely so with that we're going to move to our next story where we're going to talk about insurance workers at true stage who uh went on strike in wisconsin so this was 450 workers at an insurance company that provides financial services to credit unions and other cooperative organizations. Uh, they've been on strike for two weeks now since the 19th of May. These workers provide customer service, marketing, advertising, and many other services to help credit unions and other cooperative, co cooperatively run organizations manage their needs. These workers organized with the Office and Professional Employees International Union, OPEIU. So if you ever wanted to know what that stood for, it's Office and Professional Employees <laughs> International Union. Uh, local 39, and they've been fighting for a new contract for over a year. The company has refused to budge on key issues and has basically forced the workers into this industrial action as every strike is but it's at least worth rephrasing in that way yeah Restating well and the way. 
the the workers aren't even asking for anything particularly outrageous. In fact, these are some of the most straightforward demands we've seen in a second. Uh, they want fair raises to account for inflation, no cuts to pensions, and maintenance of health care. They are also fighting for misclassification of jobs and rampant outsourcing. So, I mean, like, really, some of just the central themes of stuff that we touch on on this show. Uh, True Stage has been outsourcing over 1,200 jobs in recent years to contractors who have no benefits. These are jobs that used to be good union work. Workers want this misclassification to end, and the fight for pensions is a major issue as well. The company has demanded the creation of a two-tiered workforce by freezing pensions for new hires. We've seen that quite a few times. Mm -hmm. And this is happening even despite the fact that the company made over a billion dollars in profit in the last three years and they have admitted that freezing pensions would only save them about 180000 It is pure and simple union busting. And honestly, uh, it's totally unacceptable to do this to workers who already have to work at an insurance company in Wisconsin. Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will say that is like, I love when the workers go in and get like all the receipts. Because it's like, mm -hmm. that to me is such a damning argument where they're like, look, we just, we can't afford to keep giving everyone pensions. And they're like, really? You can't afford it? All right. Well, uh, good job trying that with people who work for an insurance company and therefore <laughs> look at numbers all day. Yeah. It's like, well, <laughs> right? let's, let's do the math, shall we? Okay. How much is you, how much are you going to save? Okay. $180,000. That's a lot of money. How much in profit did you make? $1 billion. <laughs> like... <laughs> Come on, it's pretty fucking simple. So like, but of course, rather than simply just, you know, agree to a fair deal and to not do this stupid bullshit and to give their workers a fair retirement, they've instead rolled out a union busting playbook. Uh, they stalled at the bargaining table. They started sending workers misleading information about what the union was bargaining for. And then the, uh, they, they rolled out the classic Starbucks move, the illegal firing when they fired the union's lead shop steward, Joe Avica. Uh, the, the, that clear retaliation was the final straw, and workers had finally had enough of being jerked around by the company and walked off on strike. So uh, we have a quote here from Andrew uh, Cernetinger. Uh, I apologize, that's probably wrong, who's a spokesperson for the local, who described the refusal uh, of the company to budge on many of the issues that workers have been bargaining over, saying, quote, the union provided new proposals for bargaining. True Sage returned a counterproposal that, so far as the union's committee can tell, is only grammar corrections and no items of substance. The union asked if the employer's committee had additional proposals. They replied they did not. Union requested to bargain May 25th and May 26th. True Stage declined. End quote. You just decline to bargain? <laughs> yeah, it's like, hey, this thing we have to legal, like we're literally legally obligated to do. So we're going to schedule this, right? And there's like, uh, no. Wow. <laughs> just, just like, I'm going to pretend the union doesn't exist and then it will go away, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> like, and then in addition to this, uh, the OPIU has also been forced by the company's continuous illegal actions to file at least nine ULPs against True Stage. These include standard illegal practices by most companies, such as bad faith bargaining and illegal surveillance, but also more intense measures like trying to coerce striking workers into crossing the picket lines and, of course, the illegal firings. The company has also taken a measure which we haven't seen before, blocking workers' access to their 401k while on strike, which smells 
like that's not the law. <laughs> yeah, just like right? the, I'm the company doesn't hold isn't in control of an individual's 401k. They can make contributions to it, but there's no I don't know without like I guess maybe they have some sort of gatekeeping mechanism, but it's not theirs to gatekeep. Yeah, like I I could see them being like we're freezing like we're freezing like new contributions or something mm-hmm. because we control the management of the plan. But it's like you can't it's their money. <laughs> like you can't keep them from withdrawing their money if they want to, you know, take an emergency dip into their 401k or whatever. It's but just yeah, it's Who ri- knows? Ridiculous. This is, you know, in the United States and the United States is known for just stealing money from accounts that they happen to have a small amount of control over. See Venezuela, yeah. Afghanistan, many other examples. Oh, and just all of the generic embezzlement and wage and benefit theft that goes on as a matter of course throughout the American economy. But yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so like, you know, describing the the situation in an interview with local news station, (laughs) Channel 3000, which I'm like, is this (laughs) is this Power Man 5000's local news station? Like, uh, I don't know. I just thought it was a funny name. But uh, so fired union steward Joe Avica said, quote, the value that we've brought to this company is so high. Their profits are high, and there's just no reason to offer proposals to us that amount to cuts to our wages after inflation or cuts to our benefits, end quote. And there have actually been some developments since we first started writing about this strike. So over the weekend, after the union's bargaining team successfully made progress finally with True Stage coming back to the table which they assuredly only did because of the strike. And they were able to reach a tentative agreement, not enti- not on everything, but on several of the key issues that workers have been fighting over, such as job security, remote work, several other issues. And so they brought this to the union members, and the union members voted to suspend the strike and return to work on Monday, June 5th, which is uh, the day we're recording this. However, at the same time, They also voted to immediately just authorize resumption of the strike at any time in the next month if the company again refuses to bargain fairly or tries any more of these bullshit shenanigans. Which I just love the preemptive strike authorization because, like, you know, we've got we've we've had a lot of discussions, I think, on it's like the the tactical soundness of like doing like a strike suspension and it's very context dependent on the individual strike but pairing it with this like we don't have to come back and have another vote to authorize the strike that shit's already authorized yeah so if you you screw with us again company we can go on strike at the drop of a hat well and, and that, i think that's great it illustrates something that a lot of unions could be doing which is that like it does take a lot of time to mobilize a union and get them into any kind of state for any kind of work action whether it's a strike or a slowdown or what have you so pre-authorizing a bunch of things as soon as you encounter a problem is maybe not the worst idea i've ever heard in my life <laughs> yeah yeah and so a uh, member of the union, Liz Kidder, uh, explained their thought process like behind this, where she said, quote, after learning how the bargaining session went on Friday, it really fired me up to fight harder for a fair contract. I'd voted not to extend the strike because I felt like the company was finally starting to bargain in good faith. But we have our futures on the line. They've tried to make us feel like there's no hope of obtaining a fair contract. It did the exact opposite for me. I am more than happy to go back out on the picket with my union, end quote. 
Hell yeah. That's a badass statement. I mean, this is what they, I mean, this is what we mean when we say the company forces workers into striking. And that sentiment right there reflects it very clearly. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, of course, solidarity with these workers. I'm really glad to see that, you know, their efforts, their strike has managed to force True Stage back to the table. And I'm also just really impressed, you know, with them, like, not taking that as, oh, good, we've overcome all the problems and everything will go smoothly from here. They're like, yeah, we don't trust you any further than we can throw you. <laughs> yeah. So we're ready to go back on the picket line the minute you try any of this shady bullshit. So that rocks. Uh, shout outs to OPEIU uh, Local 39 and all these workers and uh, good luck with the rest of the bargaining. Yeah, don't mess with Wisconsin labor, buddy. You know, we can get pretty tough up here when we get together. So watch out for deer and tell your folks I says hi. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, man. Well, I, I love it when you do, uh, do voices, John. But you know what else we love? Pizza parties, right? Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> That's right, folks. We do love a pizza party, but you know what's even better? Mm. What about a pizza union? Oh, my God. Are you telling me I can get a pipe and hot pizza pie made by a local with some numbers after it? <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly what I'm telling Fuck you, John. Yes. So, <laughs> uh, you know, we, 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 you know, we make this joke over and over and over again that uh, constantly, every time there's a, uh, something pops up at the work site and, and, folks are starting to get angry you get the boss is like okay break glass in case of emergency pizza party time this will immediately (laughs) resolve all contradictions on the shop floor uh but now you know we are potentially about to see actually not i probably not even potentially i'm pretty confident we're about to see you know the first officially unionized pizza shop in what i think at least the eastern half of the country thinks of as like the big pizza city, uh, New York. Uh, uh, no apologies to our listeners in Chicago. Um, uh, and so <laughs> Alex Chicagoans know they should be eating a hot dog. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to tell people from Chicago how to make a hot dog. I think those are pretty impressive. Um, but so Alex Press, who is a re- great labor reporter, we've covered a lot of her work for Jacobin. Uh, so she went down to talk to the workers at the Barbancino restaurant, uh, which is, I believe, in Brooklyn, um, to talk to the workers there about the union drive that they've launched and how they're fighting to organize in an industry that's long been considered kind of an impossible nut to crack. Um, And so these workers who are organizing with Workers United, the SEIU affiliate backing the Starbucks workers, they pointed to the intense pace of work at the restaurant as one of the, the really the primary things that motivated them to start organizing. So Alex Dinedorf, who's a server and veteran food service worker, Describe the pace of work at the restaurant. On my very first day at Barbancino, I remember seeing around 150 order tickets in the kitchen, and there was more delivery than I had ever seen in my entire life. I thought, this isn't a pizza restaurant. This is a pizza factory. This is industrial, very fast work. To work as a pizzaiolo here is is incredibly hard. The most capable administrators in this country couldn't work at Barbancino. The president of the United States 
couldn't work a Barbancino line, end quote. Oh, and yeah. Yeah, no doubt whatsoever on that one. I mean, yeah. honestly, well, Joe Biden washed immediately. Donald Trump washed immediately. Barack Obama lasts eight seconds. Washed. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I mean, like this person uh, having the title veteran food service worker, I think is a, a pretty prestigious title when it comes to, you know, I mean, obviously you really need to know what you're doing. If your place that you work is considered basically a pizza factory, that's... That's too many pizzas. Yeah, honestly, like you're you're working in the fucking cookie clicker game, but it's pizza clicker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think of, I don't know, I put like veteran serv- food service worker in there uh, d- based on the description. But like, uh, it always makes me think because I'm like this, I wanted to put that in there because it's like, this is somebody who's been through it. Mm-hmm. Like, because mm-hmm. uh, you ever see any of the videos of, I think this has become almost like, it's become a meme at this point, but servers at Waffle House and the stuff they have to deal with. You see the videos of like, they're like pouring coffee and a huge fight breaks out and a chair comes flying through the air and they like grab it and put it back down and go back to pour coffee. <laughs> that to me is my image of a veteran service worker. Just somebody who has seen it all. They've been through all this bullshit and they're still uh, trucking. And, and so, anyone and all these people, they deserve so much better pay. We know that these mm-hmm. jobs do not pay well enough for the mm-hmm. amount of experience and skills that these folks have. Well, and it's yeah. especially with like uh, regular restaurant style sit down kind of establishments, there's no excuse that like those jobs are for teenagers or whatever, even though that shit's already oh, a yeah. lie. It's like everybody knows somebody who is a service industry lifer who has worked in hospitality or in the restaurant industry, in a kitchen, whatever. And like these people work their nuts off. It's just com- you, you meet one and you know, from talking to them, you're like, this motherfucker eats cigarettes and shits productivity. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the, I mean, it's just, you know, the constant refrain we hear, but it's like, Oh no, you got to get a real job. And it's like, as I think that was such a good line. It's like, oh, yeah, the most capable administrators in the country couldn't work at Barbancino. And I know people will be like, oh, that's hyperbole. That is 100% correct. It couldn't true. be more true. Yeah. yeah. Well, while pace of work, pay, benefits, control of schedules, and other typical issues are all, like, contributing to the workers joining this drive, several, several workers that spoke to Jacobin uh, cited one incident in particular that motivated them to organize for this permanent change. Last summer, during evening service, a pipe burst in the basement of the restaurant, spewing sewage everywhere and creating a toxic mess. Mike Kemet, uh, a busser and dishwasher, was one of the workers tasked with cleaning up the mess. He wrapped his clothes in garbage bags as a barrier and waded through knee-deep sewage to try to bail out the building. And then after the heroic effort to clean out the basement, the restaurant owner declared they needed to stay open until the normal shift ended, despite the fact that all of the kitchen's dough was stored in the contaminated basement. And despite threats of being fired, uh, Kemet and and another worker refused to serve the toxic dough and walked out. He and the other worker were not fired, but the incident galvanized them to make sure that change happened. They reached out to the uh, Emergency Workers Organizing Center, which is a joint effort between the UE and DSA, and uh, that was originally launched by those two organizations at the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, basically, their union drive shot off. Yeah, like 
I read that story, which, I mean, it's a great article. I definitely recommend folks read it. Um, but like, yeah, I think they referred to it as like the poop night, <laughs> but it's just this. I feel like we've seen this so many times, like whether it was the, the maggoty overflowing grease trap at the Ithaca Starbucks, the, the ice machine full of mold at like the New York city roastery for Starbucks and plenty of other places where these like franchise or restaurant owners are more than willing (laughs) to demand that their workers serve clearly unsafe, obviously unsafe food to people. And it's only the workers who are like, I'm not serving people poop pizza. Like what 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 fuck are you talking about? I'm not doing that. And they just walk out, which Mm. is a correct thing to do. Thank you for saving people from having to ingest fucking poop pizza dough. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's so messed up. I, it absolutely is. Uh, the workers did ask for voluntary recognition, but in uh, the common order of people pre- prepared for what the company is going to do, they also filed for a union election at the same time. With a supermajority of the store's 40 non management employees signing cards, they are very confident in their victory and basically called it inevitable. Alex Dinendorf put it bluntly in an interview with with Jacobin saying, quote, we're going to win the election. It's not even going to be close, end quote. Love it. Yeah, that's the kind of confidence we like to see. Uh, Huge energy. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Critically, workers are basing their drive on unity between front of house and back of house, or uh, which is like the common divide in any sort of food establishment. But mm-hmm. I mean, clearly, all of these workers see the need for them to come together and and subvert this trope and actually form this union. That's always been one of the weirdest divisions to me. Like, it's not that like I I understand why people are racist or sexist or anything any better, but the one where it's like you can't organize with them because you cook at a steak and they carry it a plates. Like, <laughs> what the <laughs> fuck are you talking about? <laughs> but but I mean, I think a part of it though is that like it's not a natural division, as you're pointing out. Mm-hmm. But it is one that bosses really try and make seem like a natural division. They try and pit front of house and back of house workers against each other all the time. You know, do you just tell one group that the other group is the reason everything is backed up and that they're not working that hard and they're making your job so much harder by slacking off? You just you tell both groups the same thing. Well, and, and, it, and then not only does that co- cover up your incompetence, it actually demands your incompetence to a certain degree. <laughs> Yeah, really, because it's like if you were actually a good manager, you would have solved that problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, anyways, like kind of kind of explaining this a little more, uh, a pizza chef at the restaurant, Jared Berrien, explained the challenge that they had trying to you know build unity within within the the restaurant, saying, "quote The difficulty with organizing cooks is that we can be used to abusive and adverse working conditions." That can become sort of a badge of honor that we wear as if it's a cool badass thing. There's something to be said for that because it builds camaraderie, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to improve things, end quote. And the the drive actually started off as being primarily led by the front of house. And when they started prioritizing in their organizing the, the issues they were fighting for, protection from arbitrary firing, which was one of the biggest things that cooks in the back of the house faced constantly, that helped demonstrate to the workers in the back of the house that, oh, yeah, no, they're not just fighting for, you know, better tips 
or, you know, more protections from sexual harassment, which granted all workers should want, but like things that might be classed as front of house issues to see that it's like, no, the workers want it to be better for everyone. That really helped bring the workers together and overcome that division. Yeah. Not only is it the right thing to do, it also makes your team bigger, which is pretty important. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a, it's a really important tactical decision to actually really focus on the needs of every single worker. And if you see that you're struggling to actually get support from, you know, a certain aspect of in this case the the kitchen staff, you got to think what is the what do the kitchen staff want or actually get ask a kitchen staff person what they want and say, "All right, we're putting that in our demands." And then they go and talk to the rest of the people in the kitchen staff and they're like, "Actually, that sounds like it rocks." <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that was, seemed like a lot of the, the reaction, like uh, Alex Dindendorf also told uh, Alex Press, that once the workers really understood what the union was and how it worked, which again is, I think, something that especially folks like us who like read labor shit all the time often forget, which is that a lot of folks just don't know how unions work, what labor law is, really what a union does. And that's something that we have to educate people about. It's a key part of any union drive is that that education. But And he said that once people understood that, they were very eager to sign up, saying, quote, a lot of people don't know what a shop steward is. But once they do know about it, they want one. And Barbancino is the prototypical restaurant. If we can organize... Any other nearby restaurant can too, and they'll do it twice as quickly as we did. End quote. Absolutely. This and during our drive, when we learned that we could, when we got our wine garden rights, and we could like bring multiple, we could bring people into the boss's office with us. We just always did that because it was fun to intimidate the bosses. <laughs> Hell yeah! And so, after new owners bought the store last fall. Uh, the workers came together and presented a list of demands to improve conditions at Barbancino's. And as they told Jacobin, they asked the new owners for a raise, disciplinary protections, and input on the restaurant's employee handbook, particularly as it pertained to handling sexual harassment by customers. And three quarters of the staff signed on to the demand. So, uh, you know, it's super majority uh, in front of the house workers. Like one of the big things they were fighting for was just a wage increase because right now the workers only make $10 an hour plus tips and so they asked for a base wage of at least $15, which, again, this is in New York City. And this is a pizza like, factory with 40 people who are part of this drive. That is not a huge staff for the number of orders that are going into this. It means that every single worker is busting their ass at every single moment on their shift. $10 plus tips is an insult. Yeah, and, and of course, unsurprisingly, after being presented with this list of demands— uh, the owners refused. But really, all that served to do in this case, because of the groundwork that these workers had done beforehand, was just underline exactly how vital it was that they form a union. Because they're like, this is honestly, I would say this is akin to, you know, the strategy of political organizing, where it's like you have to show people that these channels that they've been told for addressing change, that that's the right way to go about it, that they don't work. Because you can tell people they don't work, and you can give people historical examples, which is important to do. But a lot of times you just have to show that it doesn't work. And that's exactly, you know, what this served as. It's like, look, they always talk, what do we always hear from managers? Like, my door's always open. You can come to me anytime, and we can work out a way to make things better. And all this just shows is that's not true. Because the workers did that. They came to the management and they said, look, here's a very simple list 
of changes that we need to make this place an actual career, a place that we can all be proud of working and work here for a long time. And the manager was like, no, I would prefer to exploit you more. So I will not be doing that. And so it's just like, okay, we tried it their way. It doesn't work. We need a union. Yeah, I mean, it does remind me of the story of the the DHL workers that you tell about the the cop about you know explaining how the cops are not on their side. You know, regardless of what their predisposition is, they see that it's the cops who are trying to stop them from striking, and that sort of on the ground evidence was really you know a great illuminator to the actual point that was trying to be made. Yeah. Absolutely. And then just for one last quote that I thought, you know, was really great because one of the things that I think is really fantastic about the workers running this drive is they're very open about wanting to not just, you know, organize their own workplace, but to inspire more and more and more restaurants to unionize. And so uh, trying to address folks who think that maybe they don't need a union because their job is okay and things are pretty decent at the place that they work. Uh, again, Mike Kemet, that, that, that worker who was there on poop night, <laughs> uh, he, he told Alex Press, quote, when speaking with people who have been through worse, we say that the reason we should organize Barbancino is because it's a good place to work and it could be better. This could be a place where you have real stability, end quote. And that's what a union can provide, and that's what they're fighting for, and I think this kicks ass. And I really yeah. would love to try some union pizza. Hell yeah, <laughs> yeah. union pizza. Absolutely. I, I mean, like, and, you know, I, I love the idea of stability in a workforce, but what another thing that's really, like, stable in at least our show is the meme review. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with that, but yes, that's right. We do, every week, have the meme review. <laughs> yeah, uh, so this first one is a like a, uh, a caution sign-ish. It's got the like a yellow triangle. It's got a worker, a construction worker in there, but the construction worker is drinking from a bottle, and around the tri- the yellow triangle, it says "Union Strong, No Surrender, Four Day Week, Three Day Bender." And <laughs> I I think that there are definitely uh, some people who can relate to this. I know that uh, when I was working retail, it felt like that quite a bit. Except for you know, that's a nice four day week demand. You know, a, g- a good way to be like, hey. You could have a really awesome three-day weekend. Yeah, it could be Memorial Day every week. Uh, <laughs> also, like, what's, That's right. what's that tool he's using? Is he is he laying down pipe or is he surveying or what is that? I feel like that's like a ground flattener for filling potholes. Oh, is it maybe he's grading? Who knows? Yeah, I, I couldn't tell if it was a, th- a tool for grading or if it was for, like, flat... I, I think it's it might also just be for bending like rebar because it's yeah. it to, for the the added you know double up meaning of three day bender oh. right right <laughs> so maybe instead um. of like bender the hilarious shit talking robot now we have bender the hilarious shit talking union guy who's off for three days. That's, That's right. right. <laughs> also, no one is allowed to call us out of touch. There's a lot of very specific tools used on construction sites that we don't know. <laughs> I haven't um, worked in construction. I've mostly done retail and, and uh, service work. Yeah, I, I'm sure at my job I will encounter this tool at some point, and then I will learn what it is. Steel but, one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd, uh, yeah, John said a steel one, right? That's right. <laughs> but yeah, so for our next meme, <laughs> this is very much a, an IRL meme. <laughs> 
uh, in, in spirit, because of course it is June. So happy Pride Month, everybody. And this is just a, a, a post taken from uh, the uh, from Reddit, from the subreddit, r slash me uh, underscore IRLGBT. And it's just a, a, a picture somebody took of them holding a brick that they painted rainbows and then painted on it to whom it may concern, <laughs> <laughs> which I feel like this is a big mood. I feel like for pride this year. Hell yeah. 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 Needs to be uh, a protest with escalating demands and, and a threat to come back when we, when they really don't deliver on what they, you know, might, well, they're not going to promise anything and they never promise anything every look, year. You look. got, you got to get to the, point of like forcing them into promises and then uh then we'll be getting somewhere and we're not saying that this brick is necessarily going to be used we're just saying it has been pre-authorized and does not require an (laughs) approval vote um that's right (laughs) and i i feel like you know it's got to whom uh it may concern on the one side i feel like the second the, the flip side should just say we are no longer asking. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of simple and powerful messages, our next meme is from Share Zone, and it's got a glowing multicolored skull with blue light coming out of its mouth. And it says across the top in diamond, like uh, pen and pixel style um, diamond font, I will never hustle. And then under it, it says, I don't even want to be here. Why would anyone work harder? <laughs> 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 Always I mean, really good, like, you know, sage advice from the share zone. And also, like, the perfect misspellings. I can't. Yeah, yeah. Putting the W H in want, so it's want. <laughs> <laughs> or hustle, or yeah, I don't having even... one, one quotation mark and one parenthesis instead of mm-hmm. double quotation marks. I don't even want to be here. <laughs> such a funny way to think about it. I'm going to be saying that at work all the time now. <laughs> uh, I oh, loved man. this next one, this comic that uh, was is by East Coast-It Notes. And uh, they're just little like post-it note comics. And the first one is a person sitting in a chair with a cat in their lap. And uh, the little speech bubble says, Haha, what do you mean I project onto my cat? And then the, presumably a therapist with a clipboard in a chair says, Well, uh, just tell me about him again. And then the person starts explaining about their cat. Says, well, uh, firstly, Mr. Scruffles is not a fan of me leaving for work. Mr. Scruffles eagerly awaits the fall of capitalism. And then the <laughs> therapist in the last panel is scribbling down. It's like, hmm, it seems like it might be you who wants these things, but also maybe your cat would benefit. I don't know. When I try to leave for work in the morning, one of my cats routinely tries to block the front door. So there might be some truth to this. (laughs) I mean, I do think that your cats probably do eagerly await the fall of capitalism, John. Yeah, (laughs) they would, because then I would be home a lot and they could bite me whenever they wanted. (laughs) (laughs) but uh for our last meme this week you know as i as i said right at the top we really wanted to to get our feelings very clear about the supreme court so pick this last meme just a very simple simple caption tweet here from at undefeated matt uh where it says supreme court sucks shit Get rid of it. And then it's a picture of Gravedigger jumping on the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> Gravedigger, now let's now not everyone knows what that is. I don't because we do have oh. some international listeners. Gravedigger is a monster truck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So this is a gigantic, uh, you know, black, green, and purple truck with flames on the side of it. And, like, the window has, like, a skull uh, sprayed on it. So it looks like there's, like, the Grim Reaper is driving it. And it's big enough to, you know, land on the entire uh, body. So, yeah. anyways, it, it, save us, Gravedigger. It, imagine <laughs> if pro wrestling was a truck. Yeah. It's Gravedigger. Basically. <laughs> yeah, that's Bet's uh it's how uh, the Undertaker gets to the ring. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right. Well, with that, we are going to wrap for this episode. Thank you for listening. Make sure to share the show with your friends and your your, you know, comrades and all that. Let them know about the show. You can also support us as an entirely listener supported show at patreon.com slash workstoppage where you will get access to the discussion we had with working people. We're still in the middle of the cybernetics and labor series. There's an awesome upcoming series about the ILA, which is kind of an extension of the unions and the mob reputation versus reality series. So get real hype about that. And, you know, also write us a review somewhere. Follow us in all the places. John on Twitter at Facebook Villain, uh, the pod at Work Stoppage Pod. Listen to Beep Beep Lettuce. Listen to Red Game Table. And as always, Labor peace is not in our interest, and solidarity forever. Solidarity. Solidarity, everybody.